All right, the Word of God comes to us from Exodus 12, 31 through 13, 16. May he bless the reading of his word in our midst. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up, um, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, and they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses, And to Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is is bought for money may eat of it. After you have circumcised him, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, and on the very day... The Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today is the month of Abib. You are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord." 
Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you. You shall set apart the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons shall be rede- you shall redeem. And when in time you come, in, in time your son asks of you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborns of my son I redeem. And it shall be as a mark on your hand and frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. God bless you, Nathaniel. Let's pray together as we uh, consider this passage. Lord God. Father, just as you fed the Israelites and protected them and dwelt among them, Lord, feed us today. We have a need to be fed by your word and to draw close and to worship you as our King, Lord. Feed us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It happens every so often that an event happens that is so dramatic, so all-encompassing that it changes everything around it, that the whole future thereafter is transformed and everything looks different in light of that event. Friday afternoon, my two-year-old son and I were in our front yard watching the Blue Angels repeatedly pass over as they practiced uh, for the air show this weekend, and my son's life has been forever changed. Uh, The Blue Angel soared overhead, and he went back and forth from clinging on tightly and burying his face in my chest to glancing upwards and seeing them streak over. Uh, That night at two in the morning, uh, he woke up in the middle of the night crying, as he does sometimes. Uh, And so I went in to comfort him, and he wanted to know where mommy was. Uh, And then he said, I see the Blue Angels. Can we go outside and watch the Blue Angels? (laughs) I said, it's 2 in the morning, Ian. We'll we'll see him in the morning. So we went to the air show uh, yesterday, hence the sunburn. And uh, he got to see them up close and personal and uh, came home with a little die-cast model of the Blue Angels. Uh, And my son now talks about them. Uh, He sings songs about them. (laughs) He makes sounds about them. 
Uh, which, <clears throat> by the way, this is a side point, is what all of us do when we get really excited about anything, is to dream about it and sing songs about it and talk about it. Uh, <clears throat> but, uh, but his world has now taken on a, a different glow. And the Exodus, the Passover, are, are that kind of event. In fact, so much so that it's, uh, it's almost a little bit silly to compare them to an air show. Uh, the Exodus and the Passover are the redemptive event in the Old Testament. 500 years before the Passover happened, the Lord told Abraham that someday his children would be enslaved in Egypt and he would bring them out with a mighty hand. And from that point on, even the, the premonition, the, the looking forward to of that event begins to shape Israel. A, a thousand years after the Passover, the Israelites are still celebrating that event and singing songs about it. Many of the later books in the Old Testament refer to the Passover in some way. Uh, Psalm 105 and Psalm 114 and Psalm 136, just to name a few, are songs that are completely devoted to recounting in specific detail in 45 verses in the case of Psalm 105. Everything that the Lord did in the Passover and the Exodus. Psalm 114 recounts those events and suggests that not just Israel, but all of the world should give thanks for what happened in that place in that time. And because Christ himself came and said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and because he instituted the Last Supper in the context of a Passover meal, and was crucified, died, and rose from the dead in the context of a Passover celebration, I think it's not too strong to say that if you want to understand God, and you want to understand the Christ, and what he came to do, and what he is about, and what his mission is, you cannot fully understand them without understanding the significance of the Passover and the exodus from Egypt, that patterns are set in motion there which forever inform the way God practices redemption. Uh, With a a lead-in like that, uh, I should admit that uh, I don't have time in these few minutes to sort of unpack the whole Bible in the context of the Passover, and don't worry, I'm not going to try and do it. Uh, But there are a couple key things, uh, a couple patterns that get set in motion at the Passover that I want to take a look at this morning, um, two that I think are particularly challenging for us. Uh, The first one is the matter of of God's power and really, if I'm to be honest, about his justice and his judgment. Because when I saw that I got to preach on the Exodus and the Passover, at first I was like, this is great. I get to talk about how awesome salvation is and how God good is, how good God is, and we'll all be happy and it'll be great. And the more that I dwelt on this passage, the more that I realized you can't celebrate the Passover without getting away from blood and, and death, uh, and the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. And I, I want to raise the question this starkly because perhaps some of you wonder this. And that is this, what kind of God, if this is the moment where God finally, in his battle against the most powerful man and the most powerful nation in the world, finally shows himself to be ultimately and finally victorious, to be king over the whole world, and if he does that by indiscriminately 
killing children. Not because of what they have done on an individual basis. What kind of God does that? And the first thing I should say is we don't entirely know. Uh, there are things in the Bible which are forever hard, and, uh, and we don't get all of the pieces. Um, but I've seen enough of his character in the rest of the scripture and in my life and his work among you that I trust him enough to know that he's good enough. Uh, but I do want to say a few things about God's power shown forth in justice and judgment. And the first one is, if any of us had been subject to a lifetime of slavery, I do not think we would be quite as concerned. That uh, the Israelites had cried out to God repeatedly for him to save them because they had been in, in slavery, in African Americans in the South kind of slavery. It says for 430 years. Just to help me grasp that I did the math on that, 430 years ago was 1582. Can you imagine if our people had been in that kind of persecutory, harsh slavery since 1582? We would be ready for justice by now. We should not forget that just a few chapters ago, Pharaoh decided on his own whim to annihilate all of the Israelite children, three and under. And I, I don't think these two events are, are disconnected. That on some level, the Lord cares about that kind of stuff. And it is important to him that justice comes to bear. A pastor of mine once said that... Um, that God is far more, conser- far more just than the most ardent conservative could ever bear and far more gracious than the most lenient liberal could ever conceive. We'll get to that part a little bit later. Um, the point is that uh, whether you realize it or not, you want a God who cares about justice to that extent. Um, powerful people and powerful nations have a habit of oppressing the weak and the helpless. And it is good to know that we have a God who sees and knows and who cares and who someday will bring about justice and redemption. And I know that many of you here have been through great evil, are seeing evil in your lives. And uh, I invite you again to, uh, to allow yourself to wrap yourself in the blanket of comfort that comes from knowing that the Lord sees and cares and that justice will be done. Um, You can imagine um, if you had uh, a property that you owned, uh, a house, and not only just that you owned, but that you built with boards that you put in the house and nails that you drove and screws that you screwed in and colors that you chose that beautifully arrayed the house in, in a myriad of, of 
connecting and complementary colors and furnished it with the finest, most comfortable furniture with leather couches that don't mold here in Hawaii, with, uh, with granite countertops and the newest appliances. And you rented that, out, that house out. And those who stayed in the house trashed the house and broke the granite countertops and broke down doors. You can imagine how hurt and frustrated that you would be. Uh, when we first moved to Hawaii, we lived for a year uh, in a property that we shared with a man named Warren. And he was in charge of keeping our, our place up. And he told us that before we moved in, another couple had moved in, and uh, they decided that it would be a good idea to take their motorcycle into the living room and change the oil on top of the brand new hardwood floors without so much as a drip pan or a blanket underneath the motorcycle, uh, leaving stains and scratches from all the parts. And by the time they finally left the house, they left Warren a present of poop and pee in various corners of the house. You can imagine how you would feel if your property was desiccated that way. those of you with children can imagine how you would feel to know that your daughter was being mistreated at the hands of a boyfriend or a husband or, or your sibling mistreated in some way. Friends, if the Lord is king in all the earth, then all the creation is the handiwork of his hands. And all people have been made in his image, and he cares that that, that frustration and anger that you feel is just a taste that you feel because you've been made in his image of the way he feels about his creation and the people that he made. Um, and that it is, it is part of his nature to care furiously about the things that he's made. We want him to be this way. Another thing to see is that um, the judgment in this passage really isn't just for the Egyptians. Uh, it's quite remarkable. I think it... it it's actually very clear that if it wasn't for the blood on the doorposts and the lintels of the Israelite houses, that their children would have been taken as well. Um, that it's not that the Egyptians are evil and that the Israelites are good. I mean, that's part of it, but, but that there is a, a darkness uh, that is fundamental to human nature, uh, that God's justice seeks out and pushes against wherever it may be found, whether it be in the Israelites or in the Egyptians. Uh, And the real question is not why the Egyptian children, but why just the children? Uh, Why not everyone? Um, I don't always believe this myself, but I'm really convinced that the question with the Old Testament is not why is there so much judgment in the Old Testament? The question is why is there so little judgment in the Old Testament? And the answer is because God has decided to be gracious, that he provided the Israelites with a sacrifice on their behalf. Um, A couple other things that I think will help us in considering the death of the Egyptian children is that it does appear that there were believers, even amongst the Israelites. You heard at the the end of our passage that Todd read that uh, the Passover is open 
not just to Israelites, but to anyone who wants to celebrate it. And there's provisions for how that can happen. But if someone sees God's word and wants to participate in the Passover sacrifice and honor this Lord and receive his grace, it's always open to them. We saw on our passage last Sunday in the reading about the seventh plague, about the hail. Moses warns the Egyptians that hail is coming, big hailstones that are going to kill all the livestock and the slaves in the field. And then we read this in 920. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and livestock in the field. So did some of the Egyptians participate in the Passover? We don't know, but it's certainly a possibility. Um, The point is that God's invitation is always open. Um, The first thing for us to see is uh, that this judgment, harsh as it may seem, particularly in our our culture, is something that we we need from the Lord. And uh, if anyone is trustworthy to make decisions about the eternal salvation of those Egyptian children. I, I trust the Lord to be the one. Um, and it, it gives me comfort, as I hope it does you too, to know that he cares and will act in the world. Um, not always at, in this sort of vibrant and immediate way that we see in this passage, but, but this is him telling us, this is how I work. Uh, And this is what makes it possible at the end of the age in Revelation where it says there will be no more tears or crying or mourning or pain or suffering because all injustice and sin and darkness will forever be done away with because the great king in his power cares about justice. Well, the other thing we need to see this morning is the great grace of the Lord that he did provide a way for the Israelites, and indeed all who, who, in the Old Testament's words, feared his words and loved his character, to, to be freed from his judgment, to, that have a sacrifice was offered on, on their behalf, that some, in some mysterious way in his economy, that when blood is spilled, that it can cover over this darkness and make redemption and restoration possible in our lives. Uh, this is a, a salvation that is, is fully gracious, that the sacrifice atones upon our behalf for our sins. It's a sacrifice that is fully personal. The, the way that the sacrifice of the Passover lamb is described, uh, the Israelites don't know this yet, but it perfectly coincides with what we find in Leviticus, what Leviticus calls a peace offering. There's a number of types of sacrifices and offerings in Leviticus, and one of them is a peace offering. And a peace offering is when an animal is sacrificed on behalf of the sin of believers, and those believers then get to eat the flesh of the animal in God's presence. It is is a sign of peace and fellowship and comfort. That's why it's called the peace offering. It's a reminder for God's people that through sacrifice, they can sit down at a meal with God and be 
safe. It's, it's when a close friend invites you over to their house and you eat a meal together in perfect peace and closeness. That is the picture that is being offered to God's people in the Passover sacrifice. And it's significant that the Lord's Supper that we celebrate once a month was instituted in the context of a Passover meal, which is a peace offering, which to me means that communion is also, in a sense, a peace offering. That Christ, the final Passover lamb, was sacrificed on our behalf, and because of his blood on the doorpost, as it were, we have been passed over. And as a result of that, inside we now have peace, not just with each other, but with the Lord himself, that we sit down and we eat his body in a close and intimate peace meal with him. Another thing we see about what I'm going to call Exodus-style salvation, and this I think is the challenging thing for those of us who especially have been believers for a while, is that yes, it's a salvation that's, uh, that it's gracious and it's personal and it's relational, but it's a salvation that completely disallows us to have any element of control. From the very beginning, we know that God chose the Israelites not because they were the greatest or the wisest or the strongest, but precisely because they were a weak, stubborn people. The salvation begins with Abraham, who is completely unable by his own power to have children for himself. And so God gives him children out of his grace. And then those children are immediately enslaved by the world's superpower of the day. And then God rescues those slaves, and those are the people that he has chosen to call his own people. That there is no alternative but for him to fight for them with a mighty hand. And this becomes a biblical theme for the rest of the Bible, that salvation happens when God fights for us. Friends, if you uh, are going to join in on, on this salvation to become a Christian and be saved by Christ, you are signing up for membership in the little people. The small, needy, awkward, often disbelieving little people who need to be saved by a mighty hand. There is nothing much that the Israelites get to contribute in the Exodus, that in, in the plagues. The plagues is the great showdown between the Lord God of Israel, king of the world, and the world's superpower, and he fights the battle for them. And not only does he fight it for them without much of their participation, he fights it in a way that is completely unpredictable, and includes in it some hardship for the Israelites. Remember, as soon as God begins his work, what happens? They get their straw taken away, and they have to keep making bricks without straw. And I don't know how long it was that they had to keep making bricks without straw while they waited for God to work, but I know that it wasn't a day, or a week, or a month, that God was at work telling a great story their story, but a story that was um, out of their control and not completely known to them, that there was not much left to them other than the certainty that the, the Lord cared, the certainty that he was powerful, 
and the promise that someday he would finally set things right as he did. And if we're going to enter in to this salvation, we are entering into a salvation that we do not get to control or predict or have that kind of certainty about when or how. There are uh, a couple ways in which I think we particularly tend to opt out of living in this Exodus-style salvation. And one of them is by adding in our own element of control. That we, uh, we pray, yes, and, and we hope, and we do the sorts of things that we should do as faithful followers of the Lord. But then on top of that, we plan a plan. And we work the plan. And we add in extra stuff. It's very subtle. It's hard to tell because it's almost always stuff that's good. Uh, and I cannot really tell you uh, with certainty ways that you do this, but, but here's a couple telltale signs. It's, it's the thing that you have to do. It's that good thing that you can't not do for fear of what might happen if you didn't. Or put it this way, what is it that gives you comfort that your career is going to turn out okay, that the, that the promotion will come through, that, that your health will be maintained, that you will be safe from harm. Where does that comfort come from? I think for most of us, myself included, most of the time, it doesn't really come from the fact that we have a good God whom I know will work on behalf of us. I know that's true, but I also know I've got the financial plan and I'm working it out. And I've got an exercise regimen. And I've got a plan to, to get in good with my boss that'll get me ahead. It's the plan, the system we're working with our children. And really with all of our relationships, on some level, we've got to accept that no matter how much time we spend with them in prayer or biblical instruction or the perfect parenting method, or the right school, that fundamentally, at the end of the day, we cannot control when and how and if the Lord will work in their lives to help them grow into his faith. And what if what the Lord is really looking for is for us to be willing to wrestle with him and trust with him, to return back in faith and hope rather than working the plan. The other way in which I think we tend to opt out of Exodus-style salvation is by learning how to care less. Instead of fixing what we're concerned about by working the plan, we just decide over time that maybe it's not quite as concerning or problematic as we thought. Who is it in your life about whom you say, they won't ever change? It's just who they are. There's not much hope of me praying for them or longing for our relationship to be different. What is it 
a bit in your life that you used to be concerned about. And you're not concerned anymore, not because you trust, but just because, eh, what does it matter? Friends, it's not Christians, it's Buddhists, and not all Buddhists, but many, who say that the problem is our desires, that what leads to pain is that we desire too much. Friends, what Christianity says is not that we've desired too much, it's that we've not desired enough, that we gave up too soon in our wrestling with God and waiting for him to work, that he is longing for us to give him enough respect and honor and love to cry out again. We know that the Israelites got this one right. How many times in the first couple chapters of Exodus does the Lord say, I have heard your cries. The Israelites cried out year after year after year, waiting for him to work. And you know what? The Lord heard. And he may not have worked when they wanted him to, but he did work. And when he worked, he made a great story out of it. Here's the real question. Are we willing to live a salvation that's not predictable or controlled, but is a great story? What if that was the goal? For the Lord to tell a great story that our longing and wrestling was finally answered after many years. Well, what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, I love getting applications straight from the text. Take a look at uh, chapter 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember. Remember. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out. From this place. Do you notice that this passage is so dramatically different from every that we've read in Exodus so far? That so far we've gotten story. The Lord says, here's what's happening, here's what's happening, here's what's happening. And all of a sudden, the author can't help but to break out from the story to instructions on how to pass, celebrate the Passover, that he can't even get through the story without completely interrupting himself and saying, remember, you got to celebrate this every year. The Lord knows that we need holidays to help us remember. Uh, one of Todd's seminary professors, Richard Pratt, wrote a book called He Gave Us Stories. And if I ever write a book, I might just call it He Gave Us Holidays. Because <laughs> I like Holidays. But the Bible also is a lot about holidays and eating meals and celebrating. That he gave the Israelites the Passover because he knew that in the midst of a salvation that is not always predictable and certain, that they were going to need an annual reminder of what he had done and just how powerful and good he is. And not just Passover, but many feasts in the Old Testament. And now we have Christmas and Easter and Pentecost. And I'll throw Thanksgiving in there too, because I like it. I think the challenge for us is to celebrate these holidays and, yes, to give presents and spend time with family, but to intentionally remember and celebrate with great joy what the Lord has done to remember. He's done things in the past. The Christ was, came and he was sacrificed and he died and he rose again and he sent us the Holy Spirit. Don't you remember? This happened to our forefathers and it's still true now. 
And not just the holidays, but every time we celebrate communion, we get a piece of salvation that we get to eat. My friends, if you need, do not be ashamed to grab two or three or five pieces of bread and two little glasses of wine to chew on for five or ten minutes to remember that thoroughly that this is Christ's body that he gave for me. And finally this, that not just in the Christian story, but in your life, you should keep a journal, a a written record, maybe just a single sheet of paper listing some of the things that the Lord has done for you and your life. And break it out from time to time, especially the hard times, and read over it and remember because the Lord has done stuff for you. When Susie and I first got engaged in, uh, in a rush of excitement, um, we began financial planning after the engagement uh, to figure out how we were going to get a social worker and a, a part-time graduate student who's earning $7 an hour into an apartment together. And it didn't take but about 10 minutes of math to figure out that that was not going to happen that there was no way that we were going to get a deposit in first month's rent all at the same time in the time that we needed it. And then that week, our $600 economic stimulus package arrived in the mail for our $580 security deposit. Thank you, Jesus. It's those sorts of things that we as a family need to remember. And I usually miss them at the time. I did that when I was like, ah, great, it's a check, awesome. I know what we can do with this. But looking back, it's it's always showed up when we needed it. And he's worked that way in our lives as well. Let's remember and celebrate what he's done for us with joy. To eat it up and depend on him. Let's pray. Lord, I'm not always sure that, uh, that I want to thank you for this kind of salvation. But I do thank you that you have saved us. I do thank you for the story that you're writing. And I pray that it would be a great one. I pray for every person in this room that they would not end their days without being able to see through tear-filled eyes with retrospect what you have done on our behalf, by your mighty hand, to bring us out and give us a great story. Lord, bring us into your kingdom that we might celebrate it forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.